Okay, so tonight we are gonna do a subject-based video specifically on looking at the Old Testament, uh, but we're gonna be looking at the salvation narrative and how it's actually throughout the entire Old Testament. Now, what do I mean by salvation narrative? The salvation narrative is this idea of, it's a four-part piece where you have creation, fall, uh, redemption, and then new creation. And the argument is that that narrative exists across the entire Bible, that that is the subject and the purpose from the Old Testament all the way through the end of the New Testament, from uh, Genesis all the way to maps or Genesis to Revelation at the end of the New Testament, is this idea that the Bible covers one overarching salvation narrative. And so we're going to talk about that as it specifically pertains to the Old Testament. Basically, what I'm going to do is talk about how the Old Testament is all about uh, salvation, and I'm going to conclude with, it's all about Jesus. That's the whole point. And that even though the Old Testament, many people will say, well, Jesus isn't in the Old Testament, but yet it's all about him. And that's what I'm going to come back around to at the end. So we're going to start out with this idea of what is the salvation narrative in, in this idea of looking at the fall, uh, excuse me, creation, fall, redemption, uh, and new beginnings or, or new creation uh, and how we see that in different stories, right? A few weeks ago, we talked about um, the Old Testament as a whole and I did a very quick overview. This is kind of part two to that video where we, we look at all that content, but now we, we dig in and we talk about, well, where is Jesus and all of that? So in looking at uh, these different elements, the first one that we hit is creation. Genesis 1.1. In the beginning, God created the heavens and the earth. The earth was without form and void, and darkness was over the deep. And the Spirit of the Lord hovered over the waters. And then the Lord said, let there be light. And there was light creation spoken into existence by God. Very cool. So that in the Old Testament, ultimately, when you think of creation, you think of creation of the earth. But then immediately after that, you have Genesis 2-7, where you have the creation of man. Genesis 2-7 says, Then the Lord God formed a man from the dust of the ground and breathed into his nostrils the breath of life, and the man became a living being. Uh, almost immediately after that, you have Genesis 2.18, in which God says, this is not good for him to be alone. Uh, we need to find a suitable companion. We need to find a helper. We need to find somebody that tells him what to do. We need He needs something. So Genesis 2.21, the Lord caused the man to fall into a deep sleep. And while he was asleep, he took one of the man's ribs and then closed up the place with flesh. Then the Lord God made a woman from the rib he had taken out of the man. This is now bone of my bone, flesh of my flesh. And verse 24, that is why a man leaves his father and mother and is united to his wife and they become one flesh. Which actually in that action in and of itself, you have creation as well. Um, other creation elements. So you have creation of the creation, earth, uh, the mountains, the everything God's creation itself. Then you have his ultimate creation, especially in our perspective, mankind. 
Well, next you have the creation of God's people. Within mankind, you have him setting aside a specific people group as his own, and that is God's chosen people, Israel, the Jews. Within that, Genesis 11 through 47 is the formation of that, of his people. You start with Abraham, then Abraham has Isaac, Isaac has Jacob, Jacob uh, has his name changed to Israel, and that's in Genesis 32, 28, where we see that. Israel then uh, has 12 sons. They become the 12 tribes of Israel, which we talked about that in the Old Testament overview video. And if you didn't watch that, I recommend that you do. It's it's a great video that in 30 some odd minutes, I sum up all of the main characters in the Old Testament in a chronological fashion. And we talk about briefly, but I do talk about um, Israel and his 12 sons. And, and then from there, they go to Egypt, etc. I'm not going to go into that. But you have creation of God's chosen people. Okay, so Within the Old Testament, that's the creation element. Now, there are many other stories that have creation in them throughout the Old Testament, but I don't have time to go into those. I just want to talk about the big picture here. So the next one that we have is the fall narrative, right? So creation first, then the fall. Obviously, the fall, the first thing that we think about is Adam and Eve and the fall in the garden, right? Um, Romans 8, 18 through 23. I consider that our present sufferings are not worth comparing with the glory that will be revealed in us. For the creation waits in eager expectation for the children of God to be revealed. For the creation was subjected to frustration, not by its own choice, but by the will of the one who subjected it. In hope that the creation itself would be liberated from its bondage to decay and brought into the freedom and glory of the children of God. We know that the whole creation has been groaning as in the pains of childbirth right up to this present time. Not only so, but we ourselves who have the first fruits of the Spirit groan inwardly as we await eagerly for our adoption to sonship, the redemption of our bodies." This verse almost implies that the creation itself, earth, the earth itself, not man, but earth, that the whole creation is, in, is part of the fall. So when we looked at creation, uh, and I talked about the very first thing was God's creation of the earth itself, this now talks about the fact that perhaps the earth itself, the creation, feels the pains of the fall. Isaiah 11, 6 through 9. The wolf will lie down with the lamb. The leopard will lie down with the goat. The calf and the lion and the yearling together and a little child will lead them. The cow will feed with the bear. Their young will lie down together. And the lion will eat straw like an ox. The infant will play near the cobra's den and the young child will put its hand in the viper's nest. They will neither harm nor destroy on all my holy mountain. For the earth will be filled with the knowledge of the Lord as the waters cover the sea. That's a description in Isaiah of the creation as it will be in the new creation, uh, in the new heaven, the new earth. And I would argue that this is how it was before the fall. So in that narrative, you have the fall, then you have creation. Uh, so 
the creation itself has experienced the fall. That's the whole point that I'm getting at. Um, next, you have the fall of God's people, Israel. Now, this is a main subject of the Old Testament. Uh, we see once they are formed as a people group uh, and leave the bondage in Egypt, um, we see them set apart and they are given the law and uh, the, the Mosaic Covenant and they're going to be God's chosen people and the Mosaic Covenant comes in and the people say, yes, we will do this. We will follow all that. And then they constantly fall. They constantly fail. They constantly backslide. And we see in the books um, specifically, um, we see this in 1 Kings, 2 Kings, First and Second Chronicles. And before that, you see it in Exodus, uh, in Numbers. Numbers is the story of uh, Israel wandering in the desert. And throughout all of those, we constantly see this back and forth of Israel, God's chosen people, following his will, and as a result, they are blessed, and then backsliding and falling and failing. And when, when we talk about the narrative of the fall, we ourselves are, we are Israel. When you look and you might judge, when you, when you read numbers and you're like, wow, how? They, they're literally seeing miracles day by day from God. And yet, in a blink of an eye, they forget what they've seen and, and they start making idols. They start doing things that go contrary to God and they fall. And it's just frustrating, but you can't judge them too harshly because we are just as bad. So that's the idea of the fall narrative, right? So we see that in multiple different stories and there's so many more and I'm gonna cover on a few of them that, that hit on all three. Now we have the redemptive narrative, the redemption element. And as before, I hit on Adam and Eve first, then I talk about creation and then I talk about Israel. So Adam and Eve, as far as redemption, immediately after the fall, right? The fall is in Genesis 3. So immediately, right after Adam and Eve, the first thing that God does is he calls out Satan, the serpent. And we see in Genesis 3.15, God's talking directly to the serpent here, and he says, I'll put enmity between you and the woman and between your offspring and hers. He will crush your head and you will strike his heel. That is what is called the Proto-Evangelium, which is a fancy word of saying the first gospel. We see God's plan for redemption immediately after the fall. This is also what's known as the Edemic Covenant, the covenant of Adam, where God says that he is going to crush Satan and that whoever this he is, this Messiah, is going to crush him in the head, but in the process, his heel will be struck. And that is obviously the first uh, prophecy of a coming Messiah. But immediately after this, we actually see in Genesis 3.21, we're still in the fall narrative, we're still immediately after this, Adam and Eve are walking around and they know that they're naked and God asks, how did you know that you were naked? Uh, and that's when God provides for them, right? Uh, specifically, Genesis 3.21, the Lord God made garments of skin for Adam and his wife and clothed them. Well, what we see here is the very first sacrifice that was made. Because think about it. 
If God is going to provide them with animal skins as coverings, he had to kill an animal for the benefit of man. This is the first instance of a sacrificial system, and it sets up what we're going to talk about next, which is the law and the tabernacle system, which is the sacrificial sacrificial system for Israel. So you see in the creation narrative, right at the very beginning, uh, the fall, and then immediately after that, you see redemption and God providing a redemptive element through sacrifice. So the law and the tabernacle system for redemption. Now, Currently, in my weekly studies that I air, uh, we're going through Romans. And if you're traveling along with us next week, we're going to be hitting on Romans chapter 7, in which I'm going to be talking all about the law. So if you want to read, uh, listen to that and follow along with that, feel free. That's airing on Wednesday, uh, Romans 7. I'll be talking in depth about the law. But for now, I'm going to be really, really brief. And the law is a sacrifice, sacrificial system that provides a covering, uh, if you will, um, uh, an atonement for the sins committed by the people of Israel. But it's a daily sacrifice done in the tabernacle uh, to cover sins, but it's only temporary. It, 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 it's not lasting. And so as a result, you had to constantly be coming back to the temple to make sacrifices to cover your sins because we're constantly sinning. Um, Hebrews 9.22 says, without the shedding of blood, there is no forgiveness. A really interesting study, if you want to do it, is on blood in the Bible. And as you go from the Old Testament and the New Testament, the life is found in the blood. That's in Deuteronomy. The life is in the blood. And you see the redemptive power of blood. And then when you see Jesus and the sacrifice that he makes, and then the new covenant that he sets up, which we practice communion, which is represented, the cup is represented of his blood. So they had their daily sacrifices, and they also actually even had annual sacrifices as well. This is where Yom Kippur comes in. This was the day of atonement. This was the ultimate day of sacrifice in which the high priest and the high priest only went into the Holy of Holies at the center of the temple, the dwelling place of God, to make atonement for the sins of all of Israel. This happened once a year on Yom Kippur. Well, here's a question. The Jews still celebrate Yom Kippur to this day, but the temple was destroyed in A.D. 70 when Titus came in, the Roman general. He came in and destroyed the temple, and they haven't had a temple or a tabernacle, and so the sacrificial system is no longer followed. But that's a question that I'd love to talk to a Jewish scholar or rabbi about. Is like, well, how do you reconcile that? Because that's clearly set up. All of Leviticus talks about uh, the Levitical system and the tabernacle system of sacrifices. So how do you not do that today? And why don't they practice that today? I completely understand why we as Christians, as uh, Christ followers who believe that Jesus is the Messiah, understand why we don't do the sacrifices because Jesus was the ultimate sacrifice that was done once for all. And that's the whole significance of the tabernacle system and the sacrificial system. Okay, so the, the next element that I want to talk about underneath redemption that God sets up leading to the new creation, but in God providing redemption for his people 
is the covenantal system. We've talked about the law and the tabernacle system, right? And the sacrificial system. Well, the next one I want to hit on just real quick, quickly is the covenantal system. And I mentioned the covenant with Adam that God makes. Well, there's also the Abrahamic covenant. That's found in Genesis 3, as well as 12, and as 15 and 17. And that's in which God says, um, you are my chosen people. I will bless those who bless you. I will curse those who curse you. Uh, I, I will, he also promises the land. He spells out the promised land for them uh, to Abraham. Then he also outlines the fact that from your seed will come salvation for the whole world. The entire world will be blessed through you. Obviously, that's pointing towards the coming Messiah and an individual person that will bless the entire world through his line, that his descendants would be as, as numerous as the sand or the stars in the sky. Next, you have the Mosaic Covenant. That's found in Exodus as well as Deuteronomy. And this is the law. This is what I just talked about in uh, the law and the tabernacle system. That's given through the Mosaic Covenant. Now, this is a conditional covenant that God makes with Israel, his people. If you do this, you will be blessed. If you don't do this, you'll be punished. And we see that, as I mentioned, when you look at First and Second Kings, First and Second Chronicles, we see this, uh, and Numbers, you see this uh, uh, battle, not battle, but this, yeah, it is a battle. It's a battle that the Jews face, that we face ourselves, of trying to do what's right, but never being able to fully achieve it. The old, oh, excuse me, I had two verses I'm supposed to read. Apologize, I'm jumping right ahead. So, the covenants, uh, oh, excuse me, there's one more covenant. I just want to finish. I'm just going straight through to the end. I apologize. The Davidic covenant. The Davidic covenant is a covenant that God makes with King David. This is found in 1 Samuel 7. And this is where God promises through him, through David, a king will come over Israel that will set up an everlasting kingdom that will go on forever. That's the Davidic covenant. That's also obviously a prophecy of a coming Messiah. God promises Israel redemption through a new covenant. Jeremiah 31, 33 through 34 says, For this is the covenant that I will make with the house of Israel after those days, declares the Lord. So this is looking out into the future, a new covenant. I will put my law within them and I'll write it on their hearts and I will be their God and they shall be my people. And no longer shall each one teach his neighbor and each his brother, saying, Know the Lord, for they shall all know me. For the least of them to the greatest, declares the Lord, for I will forgive their inequity, and I will remember their sins no more. This is a prophecy of a coming new covenant that's promised to Israel, to the people. Zechariah 8, 7 and 8. Thus says the Lord of hosts, Behold, I will save my people from the east country and from the west country, and I will bring them to dwell in the midst of Jerusalem, and they shall be my people, and I will be their God in faithfulness and in righteousness. Also, a prophecy of a coming new covenant. Okay, so before we go on to the, the last level, while we're still in the redemptive narrative, what I want to talk about are some independent stories that exist within the Old Testament that cover this same salvation narrative, right? The story of Noah. Noah, you actually see the full element of uh, creation, fall, redemption, and new creation. 
Genesis 6 through 9. That's where you can see the story of, of Noah and the flood. Noah and the flood, you see all of that. Exodus, specifically the Passover. The Passover, you see uh, God's redemption where he saves his people. The first Passover, Passover, it's in Exodus, Exodus 12, uh, verses 1 through 11, where God instructs his people Israel on specifically what to do in sacrificing a spotless, perfect lamb, and then taking the blood and putting it on the doorpost. And then the spirit of the Lord, the spirit of death, goes over all of Egypt. And this is the final plague that is brought down on Pharaoh in which the firstborn son of every single household of Israel as well as of Egypt, everybody who's in Egypt, excluding those who sacrifice the lamb and take the blood and use its atoning significance to put it on their doorpost. The angel of death, when it comes through, passes over those houses. The Jews to this day still celebrate Passover from the Jewish perspective, and we as believers celebrate the Passover in the recognition of it being symbolic of Jesus, being the perfect spotless lamb. Passover is an amazing illustration of Jesus, uh, but of redemption, of God redeeming his, uh, uh, saving his people. Uh, the book of Ruth with Boaz, Boaz acts as what is called the king's kinsman redeemer. He takes on this role, uh, this redemptive role of saving Ruth, who isn't even an Israelite. That's a wonderful story as well. The book of Jonah, I love the book of Jonah. And the reason why I love the book of Jonah is because you look at Jonah as a prophet of God. And I don't mean to be irreverent. But he's a whiny dude. Like, if you read Jonah, read it, read it. It's a very quick read. But the dude, the guy, uh, he's sent by God to go to Nineveh and to uh, declare to Nineveh uh, to warn them that they are uh, not following God and that God's wrath and judgment will come on them if they don't repent. And he says, no. No, I'm not going to do that. You're going to save them anyway. I, I, No, I'm not going to. And so he goes in the opposite direction, sailing across the Mediterranean. And of course, you know the story. Uh, read it if you don't. Uh, a massive storm hits and the captain of the boat is like, what is happening? Why did this suddenly hit? And why is this not going away? And <laughs> Jonah's like, yeah, my bad. So God's kind of pissed at me because I don't want to do what he told me to do. And they're like, what are you doing? And he says, throw me overboard. And they're like, okay. And they do. And immediately the storm stops and subsides. And Jonah gets uh, swallowed by a giant fish. And this is also an example of Jesus. And Jesus also says that this is a story of him, that Jonah is in the belly of the fish for three days. And then uh, he comes out. And that's an example that Jesus even references. Um, but that, that's not what I want to get at. At any rate, this tangent's taking too long. Eventually, Jonah spat out, covered in juices of digestive juices of the fish. No doubt has like his hair missing because it's been the acidity is has whatever. The dude can't look good. He goes into Nineveh, 
begrudgingly, I picture a four-year-old who is forced to do something that they don't want to do. He goes into Nineveh and he gives a 10-word message. Now, I don't know if it is literally this is all that he says, but this is all that he says uh, from the book of Jonah. Um, and it's a very simple, quick message in which he says, mm, let me find it, at the end of 40 days, Nineveh will be overthrown. That's it. It's all the Bible gives us. That very well could be all he said. He could have said a little bit more. And then he goes outside of the city waiting because he wants to watch the wrath of God come down. He sits on a hill and just sits there just like ready to see God's wrath. And God saves them. The people repent and he saves them. He he spares his wrath because they repent. Nineveh is the capital of Assyria. And the Assyrians, especially at this time, were huge enemies of Israel. This is roughly, uh, Jonah was um, 750, roughly is when we think that that took place, when he was a prophet, was 750. 722 BC, the northern ten tribes get demolished, get destroyed by the Assyrians. So the tension that exists between Israel and Assyria is massive. And so Jonah is instructed to go to the heart, the capital of his enemies, and preach repentance so that for salvation. He's like, no, I don't want to do this. And so then when God forgives them uh, because they repent, he whines again. And he's, he's just sitting there bitter uh, in the hot, scalding sun, just bitter that God will forgive them. This is a story of redemption in the sense that God forgives those that aren't the Jews. Anybody, this is the illustration, anybody who seeks repentance can find it with God. If you turn to God, he will forgive you through Christ. But the other part that I love about Jonah is that it is so telling of mankind. I am Jonah. You are Jonah. You're sent out by God. And if he sends you to go and, and save your best friend who is just like you, who you want to save, yeah, you'll go out and, and you'll do the work and you, you'll happily, like, yes, yeah, send me, Lord. But what if he sends you to your enemy? God did the work necessary for salvation for everybody, your enemy as well as your friend. And unfortunately, we're often like Jonah in that we only want to save those people that we know and like, and et cetera. So at any rate, sorry, that, that tangent took a lot further, longer than I needed to. Okay, so to continue forward, Isaiah 59, 20. And a redeemer will come to Zion, to those in Jacob who turn from transgression, declares the Lord. The Old Testament is pointing and promising a coming Messiah. There's verses, there's so many prophecies that point to a coming Messiah, a coming King. The covenantal system, as I quoted, a new covenant is promised to come to provide redemption. So as we stop here and go on to the next and the final new creation, at the end, I, I mean, if you stop here, the Old Testament is just left on this cliffhanger. They're still looking for the Messiah. They're still looking for this new covenant. Now, we as Christians believe that Jesus 
the Messiah, Jesus the Christ, is the fulfillment of all those prophecies. But this was a, a question that I had that I did some digging on some time ago for a previous talk that I did. Um, are the Jews today who do not believe that Jesus is or was the Messiah, are they still looking for a Messiah? So I did some digging, and this is where I was introduced to uh, Dr. Michael Brown. And he wrote a series of books, I got four of the five, uh, and they're fascinating, um, called Answering Jewish Objections to Jesus. And what he does is he goes through, volume one is uh, General and Historical Objections, volume two is Specific Objections to Theological uh, Arguments, volume three is Messianic Prophecies, and volume four is New Testament Objections. He goes through... As a Jew, Messianic Jew, he's a Jew that believes that Jesus is the Messiah, and he presents every single argument that the Jews have against Jesus' Messiahship, and he refutes them. It's, it's amazing to get that perspective. I don't have the Jewish heritage to be able to, to understand their perspective, but Dr. Brown does, and the, one of the more helpful books of the four was the Messianic Prophecy Objections. And specifically in this question of are they looking for a Messiah, uh, he quotes, and uh, uh, I'm on page 14 of this book, um, in the words of Rabbi Shmuley Botek from his book on Messiah in Hasidic thought, he claims that the belief in the coming of the Messiah is more central to Judaism than even the observance of the Sabbath or Yom Kippur. Even referring to the belief in the coming of the Messiah as the cardinal principle of Jewish faith. And noting that one is required not only to believe in the coming of the Messiah, but to actually await his arrival. So he is quoting a very prominent um, Jewish rabbi, uh, Rabbi Shmuley, uh, who actually wrote Kosher Jesus, which is his argument against Jesus as his argument of Jesus just being a Jew, but not being the Messiah. So why are the Jews looking for a Messiah? What is this whole big deal? Why is it such a big deal? Because of prophecy. Because the number of prophecies in the Old Testament that point towards a Messiah is profound. That leads us to J. Barton Payne and the Encyclopedia of Biblical Prophecy. If you want to know about a single prophecy or any and every prophecy that is found in the Bible, this is a great resource to have. So Payne took great pains, I apologize, uh, to dig up all of the prophecies. So he found that between the Old Testament and the New Testament, 27% of this book is prophetic, meaning that it is pointing to, it is promising coming things that have not happened at that time. Now, the thing is, the Bible is thousands of years old, right? Uh, and even in the, the Old Testament, it's 2,000 years older than that, uh, if you look at it as a whole. So how many of those prophecies have been fulfilled? Roughly half of them have been fulfilled, meaning that there's prophecies uh, that were in the Old Testament that came to fruition, specifically about Israel. They're pretty much all about Israel as a nation. And if you want an amazing study, look at Israel as a nation and how 
the Old Testament prophecies, the prophe prophecies found in Isaiah have come to pass. The, the destruction of Israel, of, of Jerusalem, I mean, excuse me, the diaspora, the fact that, they, that it was prophesied that they would be scattered across all nations, across people groups. They would cease to exist as a nation, as a people. The language would go extinct. That was all prophesied. And what was also prophesied is the fact that they would come back that they would come back to the Holy Land, that they would come back to the Promised Land, that they would become a nation again. And no other people group in history, this has never happened to anyone else, any other nation. You look throughout history, and when a tribe, a people become extinct, they're gone, they're done. They're, they're gone from history. The language, when it's no longer spoken, it's never spoken again. Hebrew is now spoken in Israel to this day. It was brought back. And there's whole other studies and talks that we can do on that. I can keep talking on this. But now specifically, um, Payne found 574 prophecies in the Old Testament of a coming Messiah. Which is why, obviously, the Jews are still looking for the Messiah because their Bible promises it. Now, the last part that I'm going to talk about is uh, new creation. In this meta-narrative, we have creation, fall, redemption, and new creation. Let me read just one, one quote here, one passage. Revelation 21, 1 through 4. Then I saw a new heaven and a new earth, for the first heaven and the first earth had passed away, and there was no longer any sea. I saw the holy city, the new Jerusalem, coming down out of heaven from God, prepared as a bride, beautifully dressed for her husband. And I heard a loud voice from the throne saying, Look, God's dwelling place is now among his people, and he will dwell with them. They will be his people, and God himself will be with them and be their God. He will wipe away every tear from their eyes. There will be no more death or mourning or crying or pain, for the old order of things has passed away. And in verse 5, He who was seated on the throne said, I am making everything new. That's Jesus. Jesus Christ is the thing, the one element that God did that allowed for ultimate redemption to the entire narrative, the salvation narrative pivots on Jesus Christ, the Messiah. Jesus Christ, even in the name, okay? So Christ is not his last name. He's not Mr. Christ. Jesus is his name, Jesus of Nazareth. When they refer to him as the Christ, Christ is the Greek term for Messiah, Messiah being the Hebrew term. So whenever you see in the New Testament them to refer to Jesus as the Christ, like when Jesus asks, who do they say I am? Who do you say I am? And Peter says, you are the Christ. What he's talking about is he's saying, you are the Messiah. You are the one that was prophesied throughout the Old Testament. So whenever they say that, they're saying you are the Messiah that's prophesied throughout the Old Testament. So what does Jesus have to say about this? You would think if Jesus is the Messiah, that he himself would know it and he would proclaim it. And he does. Luke, there's three passages that I want to quote here. Luke 24, 44. Luke 24, 44. Jesus says, everything must be fulfilled that is written about me in the law of Moses, the prophets, and the Psalms. Moses 
the prophets and the Psalms. What is he talking about here? He is saying the whole Old Testament. They didn't call it the Old Testament then. It was the Hebrew Bible. They just simply called it the Bible, right? Well, technically what it's called is Tanakh, the Tanakh, the Tanakh, uh, T-A-N-A-K-H. It's an acronym that means the encompassing of the entire Hebrew scripture. So the T portion of it is for Torah. That is, uh, in Greek, that's the Pentateuch. It's the first five books of the Bible. That's the Torah. Then next you have the Nevi'im, which this is the prophets. That's the N, Nevi'im. And the final is the uh, Katuvim, is the final element. And that's where you get the K in the Tanakh. And that is the writings. So between this, you have the Torah, the prophets, and the writings, which in, includes the Psalms. The Psalms are in the writings. So when Jesus says everything that, that is written about me in the law of Moses, the prophets, and the Psalms, he's saying the entire Old Testament is about him. And that everything that's prophesied about him as the Messiah must come to pass. Then you have in Matthew 17, Jesus says, Do not think that I have come to abolish the law or the prophets. So again, he is referencing to the, the Tanakh, he's referencing to the Hebrew Bible. Do not think that I have come to abolish the law or the prophets. I have not come to abolish them, but to fulfill them. Jesus is the fulfillment of the law. And in him perfectly fulfilling the law and creating the new covenant, we, under that new covenant, are no longer under the law, which is why we don't have to eat kosher, why we don't have to follow some of the crazy, crazy rules that are in Leviticus, because we're no longer under that. We're bound by grace, not by the law. The final one that I want to mention here on, on this segment, we're wrapping up, I apologize, this is going much longer than I thought it would. My esp estimation was 20 minutes. Clearly I'm off, sorry. The road to Emmaus. I love this story. So the road to Emmaus is found in Luke 24, verses 13 through 25. Luke 24, 13 through 25. So what's the story of the road to Emmaus? This is uh, after the crucifixion, and Jesus has risen from the grave, right? But two of his disciples left Jerusalem after the crucifixion and the burial, not knowing that he came back, that he is now walking among them, right? They don't know this, right? So they're walking rather slowly from Jerusalem uh, to Emmaus. And then this guy randomly joins with them, and they don't know who he is, and he asks, what are you guys discussing as you walk along the way? And they say, what are we discussing? Where have you been? Jesus, he was crucified. We thought he was the Messiah. We thought he was going to be the king that was prophesied. And then Jesus then tells them, specifically, he says, uh, verse 27, beginning with Moses and all the prophets, he explained to them what was said in all of scripture concerning himself. I don't know if it's possible, but I would love, I hope that in heaven we're able to go back and watch scenes from the past. I would love to listen to that message that this guy, they don't know that he's Jesus. He hides who he is. He hides his identity from these two guys. I would love to walk along that road with them and just be a witness to what Jesus says to them. My opinion is, is that once we get into heaven, it's going to be so drastically different and so amazing and, and so profound that we're not even going to care about this life. That's another tangent. But 
So Jesus clearly says that he is the Messiah and that the entire Old Testament is about him. Now, there are some who will claim that every single verse is about Jesus. I think that the meta narrative of salvation of the Old Testament is all pointing to Jesus. And there are specific passages, as uh, J. Barton Payne has pointed out. There's 500 plus of them that are specifically about Jesus. But I don't think that every single line of every single word is about Jesus. But on that note of prophecies, if you want to go and see all the prophecies, you can buy this book and you can take the time to read it. It's quite the read. But a great reference is gotquestions.org forward slash prophecies dash of dash Jesus. I will put this in the bottom. Another great one on prophecies in general is also gotquestions.org and it is forward slash Bible slash prophecy. All you have to do is in the search box that's there for gotquestions.org, just type in Bible prophecy and you'll get that one that, that goes through uh, a lot of information. They quote pain as well. And then the prophecies of Jesus, just do a search on there for prophecies of Jesus. This will pull up um, a very small sampling of prophecies of Jesus, but they have a nice table that has a comparison of an Old Testament prophecy and its fulfillment. The way uh, Payne does it is amazing. Is, is that the first quarter of this book is an explanation of prophecy and the basis and the argument for his perspectives and, and then an explanation of how he does it. But then he goes through book by book, um, every single book of the Bible, quoting and pointing out the prophecies and then showing how they were fulfilled and when they were fulfilled. But what I want to do I'm going to give you homework. I was planning on reading both of these passages, but they're simply, I've gone too far, too much time. Psalm 22. This is written by King David, and this is homework for you, is to go and read this. Read it, and you will, it'll be blatant to anybody who has spent any time reading the Bible. This is clearly talking about Jesus. The only issue it was written a thousand years before Jesus. This is written by King David, who ruled from 1010 BC to 970 BC. So it's somewhere in that window. More than a thousand years later, Jesus actually walks the earth. But read what he writes. It's, it's freaky, actually, how specific he is and how clearly Jesus is the fulfillment of these prophecies. The other one that I want to read is Isaiah 52. So uh, if you have your Bible, uh, open it up to Isaiah 52, excuse me, Isaiah 53, uh, but we're actually going to start at Isaiah in Isaiah 52, verse 13. Uh, I'm not going to read the whole thing. I'm just going to read a few of these. This is called the Song of the Suffering Servant. See my servant will act wisely. He will be raised and lifted up and highly exalted. His appearance will was so disfigured beyond that of any human being and his form marred beyond any human likeness. He was despised and rejected by my mankind, a man suffering and familiar with pain. I'm jumping along here. He was despised and we held him in low esteem. Surely he took up our pain and he bore our suffering, yet we considered him punished by God, stricken by him and afflicted. But we have, he was pierced for our transgressions. But he was pierced for our transgressions. He was crushed for our inequities. The punishment that brought us peace was on him. And by his wounds, we are healed. We all like sheep have gone astray. Each of us has turned to our own way. 
and the Lord has laid on him the inequity of us all. He was oppressed and afflicted, yet he did not open his mouth. He was led like a lamb to the slaughter, and as a sheep before its shears was silent. So he did not open his mouth. By oppression and judgment, he was taken away. I mean, you could read all the rest of this. It, it, it all is clearly talking about Jesus. Yet who of his generation protested? For he was cut off from the land of the living. For the transgression of my people, he was punished. He was assigned a grave with the wicked and with the rich in his death. Though he had done no violence, nor was any decent descent, deceit in his mouth, any deceit in his mouth. Yet it was the Lord's will to crush him and cause him to suffer. And though the Lord makes his life an offering for sin, he will see his offspring and prolong his days. And the and the will of the Lord will prosper in his hand. After he has suffered, he will see the light of life and be satisfied. By his knowledge, my righteous servant will justify many, and he will bear their inequities. Therefore, I will give him a portion among the great, and he will divide the spoils with the strong, because he poured out his life unto death and, hit, and was numbered with the transgressors. For he bore the sin of many and made intercession for the transgressors. Here is the issue with this. Isaiah 53 was written by Isaiah when he was a prophet. Well, that we know to be between 740 BC and 687 BC. When you compare Isaiah 53 to the New Testament, Many people think, think and say and claim, many skeptics say that it has to be a forgery. And the reason being is, is because it, it so lines up with the New Testament. In fact, Isaiah 53 is the number one quoted scripture, single, single passage in the New Testament. It's quoted 35 times. And the reason being is, is because it points directly to Jesus. So to the person, the skeptic, who says that Isaiah has to be a forgery... Or that they tweaked the New Testament to fit into Isaiah. The issue is, is that we have the original text of Isaiah before Jesus was even born. So they couldn't have changed either. Sorry, I get really worked up about that because it's just so radical. It's just so cool. The meta-narrative throughout the Old Testament is a narrative of creation, fall, redemption, and new creation. The entire book points to Jesus. The whole Old Testament points to Jesus. It's all about Jesus, and it's all about God's desire for his creation that has fallen to be redeemed, and then a future hope that we have of the new creation, the new Jerusalem that will be in heaven for all of us who believe in Jesus Christ as our Savior. This video went way longer than I expected, but I hope it's been helpful. My homework to you is to read uh, Psalm 22. If you want to know more about Isaiah 53, I did a whole separate video that was actually uh, the culmination of one of my uh, um, Master's in Biblical Studies classes. I did a whole project on Isaiah 53. There's a whole separate video, and I'm going to include the link to that uh, at the end of this video right now. You'll be able to watch that if you want. It's also really long because I had to fulfill all the requirements of, of that specific uh, uh, assignment but it's exhaustive of looking at Isaiah 53. I hope this has been helpful. I love you guys. Thank you for watching and keep studying your scripture. Don't just take my word for it. Dig into these verses that I've quoted by 
pain and take the pain to dig up all those prophecies and see if you believe them, if they're truth. Keep studying. And I gotta, I gotta end this video. I'm just gonna walk away because otherwise I'll just keep talking. I love you guys. I'll see you in the next video.